The Old Testament prophets had some dire warnings about God's people growing way too cozy with the surrounding culture's false gods. Are modern day Christians guilty of pretty much the same thing? Especially when it comes to false religions celebrated and yes, worshiped in our public schools. Family Foundation's president, Victoria Cobb, tackles that tough subject today. Welcome to Speak Up Virginia, equipping you to speak up on the life, family, and freedom issues that matter most to you. From the Family Foundation, I'm your host, Candy Cushman, with Victoria Cobb. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back. I did want to reassure you that starting next week, Victoria and I are going to be back into our normal routine of giving hot takes on the week's news. And especially next week is important because we're going to want to hear Victoria's inside perspective on what's happening in the General Assembly and what's going on with all the crazy legislation that we know is going to be proposed. Yeah, we're definitely about to head into that busy zone and the General Assembly starting and and just the craziness that comes with that. But I think folks will want to hear kind of how these bills are going. We know it's going to be a tough one. So I think we'll be here to just kind of navigate with you as you hear on the news various things that are going on. Yeah, and actually, I think when this episode drops, when you're probably hearing this is when session is actually starting. Yeah, first day of session. Yeah. It'll be interesting. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a fast ride. Um, But for now, we want to bring you just one more convicting talk from our pastor summit that we had recently. And this time it's coming from our very own Victoria Cobb. And uh, Victoria, what are some takeaways that you really wanted pastors to have from this talk that they're about to hear? I mean, I think the first one is I kind of came at it not just as Victoria Cobb, president of the Family Foundation, but also as a mom, because I want them to understand the family struggles that are happening over releasing your children into an educational system and whether that system is sort of aligning with your values or that system is not and having pastors really understand the struggle that's there and how they can be a part of um, redeeming that that difficult situation that literally we've talked about it before on this podcast that there are so many hours spent in the school building we need the church to engage to make sure that that is not I, i mean i talk about a cosmic battle over the hearts and minds of our kids and that battlefield is the is with the school building yeah. it's what's happening inside and i loved how you brought it to a personal level talking about when emma was young <laughs> um hearing her just try to uh, she says i want to pray at dinner but you couldn't really understand her prayer but it was with such passion yeah. that everyone knew it was going straight to god's ear and how you felt this conviction as a mom I want my child to have that passion and love for God the rest of her life and just the forces that are out there combating with you as a mom, wanting to to instill that and foster that. And so I just, this is a wonderful talk at both a personal level and a convicting level. So without further ado, let's hear from Victoria. I'm just going to share a little bit um, from my heart as a mom, um, which maybe I don't talk about as much um, when I'm talking policy and all that. But, you know, when my daughter, Emma Grace, was two years old, She had such a passion for life, and she still does at 12. Every aspect of the mundane day somehow brings her joy, which is really fun to be a part of. And she would speak and sing sort of nonstop, but you couldn't actually really understand everything that she was saying and singing. Um, And at dinner time, my husband would ask who wanted to be, you know, say a blessing. And she would be the very first to raise her hand and say, me pray. And so we would all bow our heads and listen really intently, mostly not able to comprehend what she was saying. And then in her sweet words, she'd have this emphatic, 
amen, and we'd sort of know it was over. And, you know, she'd get to bedtime prayers, and it must have been the sweetest sound to Jesus that this child with all this passion is just pouring out her heart, and it was no match for her speech impediment. And it's when she prayed that I was convicted that I would do everything possible for the rest of her life to make sure that she kept praying that way and that God was blessed by that child's heart following him. And this isn't just the cry of of my heart as a parent, this is the cry of so many Christian parents in your congregations. This is our heart around our children, that they always love Jesus. That through those elementary years of all that physical growth and those middle school years of all that emotional growth and the high school and college years of that intellectual challenge, that they stay on track and that they, they follow Jesus. And at the end of it all, that they will love God with their heart, their soul, their mind, that it all stays committed to him. And you know, by the time these kids are four and five, we as parents have to make a hard decision about where they're going to be educated. We have to figure out, and that is really truly a major, major decision in the life of every parent. And I know many people who choose a Christian school and they do that to avoid the concerning aspects of public education. Um, In many ways, a Christian school is a refuge from, right now, for example, co-ed bathrooms that your daughter could be in with a biological boy. It's a refuge from, you know, they're taking personal computers and they have access to pornography in a way that we never did as kids. Um, Or really even just avoiding the subtle or overt references that happen in the classroom to you're an oppressor or you're a victim based on your, you know, this idea that we're gonna tell other, somebody's gonna tell our kids what their identity is and it's something other than Christ. Um, And at least in a Christian school, a parent isn't likely to deal with some of the problems that we hear about at the Family Foundation every day. Uh, I think of an example that just came up this week of parents who are in a Fairfax public school system, and I'll I'll keep them nameless, but they basically learned that for Veterans Day, so just earlier this month, um, parents of the kids in their class were invited into the classroom and they could come and read to the children and tell their story to the children. And apparently one father came in dressed as a woman and introduced himself as the child's mother. A six-year-old child was rather confused about the situation and asked where the classmate's father was. And the man replied by telling the class that he used to be the child's father, but now he's the child's second mom. The man went on to read to the class and nothing was corrected or said or or clarified to these kids. These parents, who are parents who had opted out of family life education where they thought all the transgender stuff was going to go, were pretty shocked to learn about this and they only found out about it over their child discussing at the dinner table. It wasn't like the school even bothered to tell them, oh by the way, this happened in the classroom today. And I really wish I could tell you that that was a rare one-off situation, Um, but it's not. This is just the reality. At the Family Foundation, we get endless stories like this. And for those of you, many of you who just in the room said, well, at least I don't live in Fairfax and Loudoun, I just just wanna remind you um, that it it was actually in West Point, Virginia, where the teacher was fired because he didn't want to use inappropriate pronouns for reality. It was in Gloucester where the boy wanted to use the girl's bathroom, and that's the case that went all the way the 
US Supreme Court, and it's in Appomattox, where you may have heard the story about Sage, the young girl who was gender confused. The school hid it from her parents, right? And that ended up in a situation where she gets drawn into sex trafficking. None of those are your liberal bastions around the Commonwealth. These are places where all of us live. Um, and that is the unfortunate reality in any secular environment in our culture these days. Um, and these are situations that kids and parents encounter every day at non-Christian public or secular schools, any non-Christian environment. Um, but my husband and I, we didn't select a Christian school for our kids to avoid harmful exposure. Um, my husband and I chose a Christian school for our kids so they would receive daily good exposure to biblical principles. Um, from Monday through Friday, I calculated that I have about 27 waking hours with my school-aged kids during the school year um, to obey Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9 that says, I gotta talk about God's word, I gotta walk it, I gotta live it, they gotta absorb it from me. They've, they've got a, it's about 27 hours um, you know, that when I sit and I lie down and I walk, that they're picking up on this stuff. Um, and while that seems like a lot, my kids, their school gets 33 hours a week. So the school is already getting more time than I get with my kids Monday through Friday. Um, 33 hours to instill things that are either consistent with my efforts to instill God's word or they're instilling harmful things. It's, it's, it's one or the other. Um, when my oldest child was in kindergarten, I eagerly went to the first back to school night. Now I will tell you, she's now a senior and I have four of them, I don't eagerly go to back to school night as much. Uh, I, it's not as exciting of a thing. But I will tell you that um, when I sat there and I heard my Elizabeth's teacher talk about, not what she was learning necessarily, I mean they did, but, but what a great privilege she had to lead these children closer to Jesus. And when I saw her face and the tears well up in her eyes, I was a flood of tears because I knew at that moment I had a partner in what I was trying to do around my child. And just a month later, after you know, a couple months of being in kindergarten, I go to this Thanksgiving chapel assembly and I watch my kindergartner recite all of Psalm 136. And it wasn't that I was amazed by her ability to do that because we had not practiced it at home at all. And I was sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is pretty good stuff. But it was the fact that she was doing it and experiencing such joy of just also the academic sort of rigor of it, but then that it was God's word that she was getting in her heart. And again, a flood of tears down my face, realizing that this is what my child gets to have as an education. It was just this confirmation of my decision. Now, I'm gonna be perfectly honest. I have chosen Christian school for my children in part because I know I'm gonna fall down on that job of discipleship. I know that I need other people to help supplement that discipleship that I'm doing with my kids. Um, but specifically and tangibly, my husband and I were able to make this choice, one, because I worked at the Family Foundation and I couldn't homeschool my kids, right? So a lot of people get that opportunity and I still feel called to be here doing this, so I couldn't do that. The second one was that we were financially able to afford to do that. And the third piece is that there was a Christian school that was academically rigorous and had seats available for kids to actually be a part of. Um, this isn't always a choice available to many, many people in your congregations. And I don't want those of us that got to make this choice to forget about those who don't have a choice, who don't get a choice. Um, every day, kids in your congregation step into 
public schools or secular, in some cases, secular private schools, but mostly they're stepping into public schools. And maybe some are doing it because Christians believe, you know, believe that their kids can be a light, but a lot of them are doing it as a result of not being able to afford something other than the public school or single moms that can't think about anything other than the closest physical building that gets a transportation situation to it. Um, it's just the reality that some parents would love to send their kids to some alternative that backs up their values in some way, um, but they can't. Uh, make no mistake, homeschooling is a privilege. It is not a guarantee. Uh, people are going to work every day. At the Family Foundation, I let these parents know that for decades, we have been fighting to help them have a choice where they can align their child's education with their biblical values in some way. We've also been fighting to help the public schools do a better job of aligning basic principles out of God's word that help human flourishing no matter what you believe. Um, we work for a system in Virginia whereby every parent, regardless of their income, could access the right environment for their child. And it's not a pipe dream. Our neighboring state in West Virginia does it. Arizona does it. This is not, this is not unrealistic. It just isn't happening across the board here in Virginia. Right now, Virginia has a very small program. You know, you have a, a, a tuition tax credit that folks that are less than 300% of the poverty line can access, and that will allow them to attend something other than whatever they're assigned to by their zip code. Um, but we've gotten to try very hard to continue to expand this program, and we will continue. I'll be very honest, I think this year we're gonna be in a very much a defensive posture because as we're trying to expand, there are many elected officials trying to take away the 5,000 scholarships of kids who are actually succeeding somewhere other than the public school. So we are in a very, very direct battle even just to keep these 5,000 kids who are experiencing the benefits of these where they are. Um, but even if we hang on to our existing program, we aren't there with every child. We aren't there allowing every parent to have that best choice. Um, and if you've joined us at any of our other pastor events over the last couple of years, um, a lot of what we've said when we've met with you guys is that we believe the call of the church is to come alongside families in the middle of this education crisis that we find ourselves in. And I did use the word crisis on ve very on purpose. The crisis is academic. If you aren't aware, Virginia schools are not doing what we want them to do on the SOLs. In fact, the most recent standardized test says that about two-thirds of our third through eighth grade either failed or are at risk of failing their math standardized test. That's the situation, and it used to be at certain places. It is not good in most areas of Virginia where we need to be. So it's an academic crisis. It's an ideological crisis. There's a philosophical divide between those who think school is about math, reading, and writing and those who believe school is about shaping the next generation, and whether that's towards liberalism or Marxism, we're watching that play out on our college campuses right now as you watch um, sympathizers to terrorism on our university level situation. It's a crisis of authority. Who has the final authority when our kid steps into a school? As I, do I, as a parent, leave my parental rights in the parking lot and release a child completely to someone else's decisions made during the year. But most significantly, it's a spiritual crisis. Is the school a neutral environment where someone can bring their faith and exist within that environment, or is it hostile to the things of God? When your parishioners are experiencing a significant health crisis, what, what do you do? You come alongside them, you pray with them, you work through things with them. You're probably teaching, preaching about the sovereignty of God and the role of resting in God's divine care. We shepherd people 
in our congregation through health crises. We need to shepherd them through this education crisis. I don't believe I'm overstating it when I say there is a cosmic battle going on for the souls of our kids. I'm gonna repeat it, there's a cosmic battle going on for the souls of our kids and the battlefield is in the school building. Research suggests that a person's worldview or their faith or what they're going to believe for their lifetime is largely put together by the age of 13. Crazy young. From that point on, mostly we're refining our worldview. Obviously, Jesus comes in and steps into that a lot and saves lives, but that is the general perspective. I hate to be the one to highlight this, but what that means for us as the body of Christ and as we look at the lives of our kids is that before a child's 13, they're spending about 9,500 hours in a school building. Best case scenario, let's, they're in church on Sunday mornings, they might go to a Wednesday night, I don't know, Juana's, whatever you guys have, Wednesday nights going on for kids or something. Maybe they're 2,500 hours in your church building. That is not a great lineup. <laughs> if you're playing a sports team and they practice five times more than your team, who do you expect to win the game? Now, I'm not saying things aren't happening in your homes and all that, but I'm just kind of really being honest about the battle, the clash, the thing that is happening over top of our, the lives of our kids. Yet somehow I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that our churches maybe aren't visualizing the spiritual battle. Maybe we're just not looking at it that way all the time, that, that somehow we're sort of segregating this into spaces and we have the church space and then they go off to school and, um, I mean, just, I think about it a lot in sort of the, if you remember in 2 Kings, where, Second um, Kings 6, where Elisha is, he prays and he says, and Lord, open the eyes of this young man, right? And then he opened, God opened the eyes of the young man and he saw the spiritual battle. He saw the horses and the chariots. Sometimes I think we might need to pray that the eyes of the congregation of our church, of the body of Christ is open to this cosmic battle, that we're actually seeing what's going on because it's real easy not to see it, right? We, we see the natural, we don't think and visualize the supernatural. Um, and I'll just say this, um, I, I wanna reference a section of the Bible that isn't commonly discussed, I would say, in, in many places, but I feel like you're pastor, so I feel like we can take it to the, the next level. I wanna talk about Ezekiel, um, which I, again, isn't necessarily where everybody spends all their time, but um, and as a reminder, Ezekiel is, I, I think it's kind of a bizarre book where God calls this prophet to do some bizarre things to try to make the point about Israel's sin. I mean, it's just, you know, it's not your everyday sort of discussion between God and this prophet and what he's called to do. And, but God's using all these different methods to try to get the people of Israel to realize that they've sinned, that they're worshiping these false gods and they've made God very angry. And, and, and it gets real weird. It gets to, and, and chapter 16 kind of takes the cake because if you haven't read in a long time, it's where literally um, Ezekiel is told to analogize the people to a whore. <laughs> um, so this is like, you know, not your, uh, not your casual reading of the Bible, but this chapter happens to be extremely graphic. And what God's doing is he's outlining all of the many blessings that Israel's been given, like honey and oil and all these things, beauty and fine garments. And then he explains that they've taken those blessings and they're using them for adultery, that they've literally like taken all that God's given and they've put it in the wrong place to worship the wrong kinds of gods. And you get the real impression that God's really angry because he keeps using this word abomination. You know, you're like, this is a major, major problem. And there's so much in this book that applies to us 
who live in a country that have been just given unbelievable blessings. Um, I mean, I, there is nowhere else in the world that has been given the blessings that God has given us here in our nation. Um, and when you hear the subtext of this in, in this conversation in Israel, you get the sense that Israel has gotten way too cozy with people who don't love their God, with the, with the Assyrians or the Philistines. You get the sense that like, it's this buddying up to culture that has caused this sin problem, this worshiping false gods uh, or prostituting themselves, which is basically how it's laid out. And the part that gets me is when it gets the blessings of children. And he talks about the blessings of children. And then he goes on to say that the Israelites have slaughtered their children and delivered them up as offerings to false gods. And you sit there and think, how can anybody do that? Like, how could you ever get to that point? Um, and yet, in our culture, we're pretty darn cozy with people who don't worship our God. And we give them a lot of influence over the lives of our children. People who worship at the altar of sexual identity, people who don't acknowledge the creator and who don't believe they were created by God and they don't even think they were created in the right body. Their religion has symbols. It has ceremonies and it has evangelists. People who genuinely work to convert society to their God. And every parent has to ask themselves, have I gotten too cozy, too cozy with the people who worship with another God and who don't have my child's spiritual best interests in mind? Am I fighting to protect our children from the false gods of our culture? Let me conclude with saying this. Um, the book of Jude talks about contending for our faith. Contending is not coexisting. I don't see it like that. Contending is strategic engagement. It means there's something going on and we've got to lean into our faith to defend off what Satan is trying to do. Satan is trying to lie, kill, and destroy. And we have to contend. And I believe that's the cosmic battle. And if our eyes are open, we would see it over our children and we would want to contend for them. So what would contending for the souls of the children in your community, in your congregation look like in the realm of education? It couldn't look like opening your church doors to a homeschool co-op that just needs a place so that more people can get access to easy education in a place they're used to coming. It might look like your church starting a Christian school or expanding the Christian school that you have to make more room for alternatives. Schools are full right now. It might look like your church coming down to the Capitol on January 24th when we go and try to defend those scholarships and try to advance school choice. It might mean being a part of engagement at the state level to help people understand how important education opportunities are. It could look like, really, you showing up at the local school board, showing your congregation how to have conversations with their school board when they're battling over transgender model guidelines. We have great governance now coming down from our governor's office. We're excited to hear from um, the education office of Governor Youngkin with Secretary Schultz, um, Assistant Secretary Schultz, uh, Superintendent, sorry, I'm messing up your title, but you know what I mean. You'll hear from her later, but anyway, you'll, we have great guidance coming down from their office on how to handle these issues but they need backup. They need people influencing their school board. Maybe that's what contending for the faith looks like. Um, the list goes on, but I hope you get a heart for this cosmic battle while you're here today. Will you hear people talking about the value of engaging more than just Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, children's ministry. Um, those that bow down to false gods of this culture are telling you to stay out of the battle. They call it political. They tell you the discussion has no place in your church. That's what they say. They are defining what you should be a part of. I will tell you this, they tell you that it's gonna divide your congregation, that it has no place, that your people don't belong at school board meetings. 
but they make their church, their schools, our schools, where our kids are going, their churches, and they have ceremonies. And they, so they tell you don't touch this in yours. And then they turn our schools into their place to worship their false gods and ask our kids to participate. I'm gonna end with this. God's defined education. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. To me, that makes it our church's problem. That is our jurisdiction. We're the ones responsible to pass on the fear of the Lord to our kids. All right, I just have to say one of my favorite points in that speech was when you talked about false gods and the fact that you've got those in the culture basically telling Christians, the body of Christ, to stay out of what's happening in education. But at the same time, in our public schools that taxpayer money is spent on, our public schools, they are bringing in their false gods. They are celebrating them and doing the equivalent of worship. Well, I think we have to remember that education used to be wholly connected to faith, meaning they, people learned to read reading the Bible. That, that was how it started. Then we separated these two things and kind of put faith over here and education over here. Well, there's no what they call naked public square. There's never going to be a place where it's just void. Something's going to come in and fill that void, and we've allowed those who absolutely are in, heading in the exact opposite direction of our faith to fill that void. And so, yes, they want to push us out and enter, and our kids are the victims of that. Yes, because they're asking our kids to participate yes. in these quote-unquote worship ceremonies. Yes. And I think we won't give all the examples of what equates to a worship ceremony that's pagan, but that is what's happening. Um, and I think that kind of leads into what we know is going to be an important issue in the General Assembly this year, and that is with school choice, because we talked about before this scholarship program, not a lot of people know about it, but it's Virginia's only school choice scholarship program that actually enables kids and families below the poverty line. Is that right? They're yeah, these are kids who, other than this scholarship, would be confined to whatever the building is that their zip code assigns them to. And, that's, and that is whether that's going to give them a good education, whether their kid's going to be bullied there, whether the values align. That is the system in Virginia. And we are so far behind the rest of the nation in allowing our kids freedom to be able to have parents choose where a child is going to best flourish. And many times those are in faith-based schools. And so this is the little tiny program we have that we desperately want to expand. But before we can even expand it, we got to defend it. There are 5,000 kids benefiting from this that um, if the General Assembly does the wrong thing, those kids lose their scholarships and, and back to the school that they're assigned to. Yeah. And the bottom line is, just because you happen to be at a lower income level, your kids should not be relegated or trapped in a school that is one, maybe an unsafe place, they're not thriving there, but also openly going against your family's values. You should have the educational freedom to choose a school that's gonna help your kid and respect your values. I always tell people, we have school choice in Virginia, just for those who have the financial wherewithal yes. to put their child in a private school or move into the right school district or whatever it will be. And so that's where, that's where it's just a place where our hearts have to be sensitive to those that aren't able to, yeah. to be able to align their values with their education. And we gotta make a path for them. So if you wanna be a part of giving more kids a choice, we want you to participate in our upcoming School Choice Day. That's Wednesday, January 24th. You'll be hearing about that. Get that on your calendar. And stay tuned for other Action Days, Mama Bear Day on February 15th and March for Life, February 21st. And with that said, I think we'll just go ahead and wrap up. Remember to share our Speak Up Virginia playlist. And if you're listening on the audio platform, Spotify, Apple, give us that five-star review so we can reach more people. 
And remember, we are stronger when we speak together. We'll see you next time.